Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we begin, I, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using Internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this, this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me, you'll love it. When you're in a band and things begin to take off, life starts to move pretty, pretty fast. Days start to blur as you move from gig to the studio, from the studio to the van, and back from gig to gig. Unless you have someone to document what's happening, you run the risk of forgetting a lot of what you go through, both the good stuff and the bad. One way to combat this is through talk therapy, or at least my version of it. This involves getting the entire band together at the same time and getting them to talk about their experiences. And once everyone starts to reminisce, the memories start coming back. That's what I was hoping for with Arkells, when all five guys gathered for a long talk. This is part two of Arkells in their own words. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the second half of an In Their Own Words profile of Arkells. And let's pick things up with how the Michigan Left record came together. So there was a, a long period... Well, in this day and age anyway, between Jackson Square and Michigan left, I mean, all three years went by, almost exactly three years went by, 10 days short of that. Um, what was, so you were playing a lot, and how much time did you actually have to write that second record? Jeez, I don't even remember. I have no idea. <laughs> Where did, yeah. We recorded at the bathhouse. I remember we Kansas. made a couple of demos at the Tokyo Police Club space. No, yeah, that was yeah. for High Noon. Oh, that was that for was high, high noon. noon yeah. Yeah. Oh, then I don't even know. Do you remember? No, I'm trying to think if I have demos from then. But I, I, I yeah. think, I think we were working a lot, probably in Dan's basement, those days. Yeah, I think I well, have. Well, Dan produced it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was. It was like that. That record. We we sort of I think were trying to figure out the way forward in terms of like 
uh, what to do next, like as like as any band does. But I think we kind of had this sort of us against the world vibe that we just wanted to try and do it all ourselves and just hunker down with an engineer and 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 make it make it happen, which was a really fun and interesting experience, and I, we learned a lot in those. Well, this, was couple also, months. this was also your first major label album. Uh, at the time, it it wasn't really like that. We we ended up uh, having the record done before we we uh, signed to Universal. So that record was made with actually no pretense that it was going to be a major label record or, oh, so or you, anything. You were one of these turnkey turnkey operations that you were able to present uh, two albums and a fan base to a major label so the kind of thing that they really like these days yeah yeah they um and universal had been the distributor for dine alone so we knew i think some of the people in their camp and uh yeah so long ago I'm just remember it, it does seem long ago because yeah. i can't even though you guys have only really been on the scene since 2008, which is about 10 years, mm-hmm. it seems that you guys have always been around. Every time you look around, there's Arkells doing something, yeah. which I think is a testament to your, your work ethic. You're always, always working and always visible. Yeah, I think we're like, we try to learn from um, the bands that do things well and then also sort of the hiccups that you see other bands make. And, and we've made our fair share too. Um, and I think working consistently and being loyal to your listeners and and providing them with you know the service of new songs and shows and all those things i think uh is is really important to remember that well you and i have talked about this yeah. this 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 importance of being able to continuously supply your audience with something yeah it may not be an album it may be a song between albums it may be something special you do for them online it may be you know a a pop-up event Um, but you always audiences expect to be engaged consistently and constantly now and you guys have done a very good job of that yeah and i think there's the odd band that it works in their favor to be mysterious and, and aloof and you know, not seen very often, but I think for a lot of, I think most bands have to do, have to, you know, show that they, they earnestly care and whatever flavor they want to present it is is sort of up to the band. But I think for us, and the other thing is like when we get home from tour, we're, we're tired and you know, we, we could use a few days off, but then after, after a few days, we're like, all right, what are we doing? Like, you know, like we, we want to wake up every day with a sense of purpose and, the best and most interesting work is stuff that is creative and that we, you know, can work on together and then put out into the world. Let's talk about the songs on, on Michigan left. Um, there were two singles from what I recall. One was whistleblower. Mm -hmm. Uh, does anybody remember anything about the creation of whistleblower or is that too long ago? Yeah. I I just, I remember, uh, we played it live at the Olympics was the first time we ever played it live. It was quite different than it ended up. Yeah. Is it online? I think so. Oh, cool. Um, I'm trying to think what else I remember from that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that whole session was like a real mixture of working on all the songs in a really somewhat unfocused kind of way. Like we, you know, we had never produced a record without a producer before or a, a, a professional producer. Dan was doing it for the first time uh, with us and uh, with, with all of us together. And I think a lot of those songs were just uh, a lot of uh, uh, 
we didn't have a whole lot of direction as to what they were going to be. I mean, I think that song in particular probably was the most like Jackson Square in terms of being sort of a loud, fast rock song. And yeah, it was the most aggressive thing on that record for sure, because I do remember a turning point in making the record uh, in Michigan Left where we were open to a lot more influence a lot more influences. Um, whereas on Jackson square, it was like, it's gotta be guitar and it's gotta be edgy. And, um, you know, the drums need to be super loud. And on this record, we were like, you know what? Hollow notes actually sounds pretty cool. And I hated hollow notes before we made Michigan left. And then I was sort of, ah, those synths actually kind of sound interesting. So we were interesting in making a slightly more like nuanced, record i think and making it a more of a student like oh fleetwood mac i never really gave fleetwood mac much serious attention but now let's try to do something oh, let's get kathleen edwards in here and she'll sing harmony on one of the songs and she can be our stevie nicks or you know what i mean and, like and bands like spoon i think we started listening yeah, spoon to, was a huge like influence the, the production of other bands i think we started hearing how they were doing just interesting and different stuff and and listening to music in a way i don't think we did when we made Jackson Square, which was really just such an encapsulation of like these four years of these songs live and, and they'd been refined to this point and we just sort of recorded them. And, uh, John Drew, who recorded that did a great job, but I think that that record sounds great. But I think for us, we wanted to really push ourselves to, uh, emulate these, these heroes of ours like Spoon that we were like, we had a lot more time too. Like we recorded Jackson Square and basically, you know, two weeks or a little bit over two weeks. So Michigan Left was our first opportunity to actually be in the studio for a month and uh, try a bunch of different things where, as with Jackson Square, we were like, let's just get the ideas out and and down. And with Michigan Left, we could experiment more and see if we like something or, or try different, you know, different arrangements or instrumentation in a way that with Jackson Square, it was well, like kind of rush in and rush out and try to get it recorded as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's it's tough. like budgets when you're on making your first record. It's tough, you know. You gotta like studios are very expensive, obviously. And um, I remember, I remember like we had five days to record bad tracks, and then we went, we found like a cheap studio to go do overdubs at. Over Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm just saying versus the second yeah, record sure. to, to Nick's point. Like we had so much more time, and uh, and you know, and we we're at the bathhouse, which is great. They have every guitar amp you can imagine. You know? Yeah. So we, we definitely, and, and a lot of, you know, we got really into like throwing things through delays or, or, you know, a gated reverb on a snare drum, like different things that we, we didn't have the luxury of time due to budgetary restraints on the first record. Totally. So. Yeah. And we were living there as well. So the bathhouse, you can, it's the tragically hip studio in uh, bath Ontario and upstairs there's all these rooms. And so we were living in the same studio in the, in the same building as the studio. And so we were up, till five in the morning sometimes with a weird delay that they had hanging around like or making weird percussion sounds or just kind of getting into it they have like an old uh, plate reverb in there it's a really cool spot for a bunch of whatever how old are we 23 year olds or whatever to just experiment i got scarlet fever actually during that uh uh, joking during that recording session you had to to go to the doctor you had to be be quarantined you had to be quarantined what did you get bit by a tick or something i don't know what happened but yeah, I was out of commission for a couple of days. But you know, I will say this: that the the one thing that I I think we learned from making that record, and I think we learned something from every record, is that h- hiring a producer is actually a very helpful thing because I, I do remember it being 
tough as a bunch of like kids doing something for the first time. Um, work, working through all the questions that, that have to be answered when you're making a record and all the decisions that have to be made. And I think for me at least, um, and thinking about how this is a, a big picture, long-term project. We, yeah. A, a producer is, is part psychologist. He's a social worker. Really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and is also a translator, uh, you know, and, and is good enough to speak the language of every musician in the band. And if so, I could, you know, if I try to explain something to Tim that I want to hear in the drums, it might not make sense, but it sometimes, you know, the translator can, can make sense to the, to the other person. And I think, you know, we make records every two years, uh, but all the time in between we're, we're together touring. And I think for me, like making sure the vibes are good is, is one of the biggest priorities. And, um, and uh, I, I'm really happy with the result of Michigan Left, but it was definitely like a hard record in some in some ways. So you move on to to High Noon in 2014, and you decide that you're going to record this one in Los Angeles. Our big LA record, man. Everybody's got a big <laughs> LA record. Yeah. Enter Tony Hoffer. Yeah. yeah, this is the first record with uh, with Tony uh, in the mix, and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, how did that? How first of all, how did you decide to end up going to LA, and what was different about working in LA versus working in Kingston? Well, we we wanted to work with. Um, we had a wish list of producers, and, and Tony Hoffer was probably the top five. He'd made records from Phoenix and M83 and Beck. Um, and when he agreed to work with us, it was really exciting. I think I remember that we had reached out to Tony Hoffer. Oh, yeah. And I guess, like, through his manager or something, it never quite got to him. But then... I guess he was working with some other band in LA and he was watching and the band had said to him like, should we play this session or something? Does this session seem like it's good to you? Like some live session. And we had just done it recently. And I guess we were the first one up. So he saw us play a song and he was like, Oh, this is a cool band. And he reached out to us on MySpace. <laughs> on MySpace, saying like, "Hey, you guys are wait." In, in twenty thirteen, he reaches out on MySpace. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And, and it was just like. Hey, you guys are cool. Are you thinking of recording anytime soon, or like something like it was something very casual. Yeah, we couldn't believe like, it. We're like, we've been trying to get hold of you for the last six months. Yeah, so it really felt like meant to be, and and he had made yeah some. Well, I think some the most amazing, amazing thing to me is that in 2013 you had a MySpace page. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Keep, Just keep us and Tom were left on that thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, and this is the first record uh, Tony recorded with us. Our Tony, our Anthony. Okay, that's right. Yeah. So you had come off the road with Ill Scarlet. I, well, I, I actually came in. Well, they had had Michigan left recorded, but I toured Michigan left with them. Um, so I, I, I had some experience with these guys and then, um, I, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a fun record to make just cause musically I, you know, like everybody's vocabulary is a little different and especially from the other bands that I was working with at the time. And, uh, I remember being a little nerve nervous about it in the sense that like, you know, cause you guys were super up on synthesizers and I was like, I play piano, like, you know, and so it was a lot of like trying to get into that world and, and uh, we did a lot of it. We rehearsed a lot of it at the, uh, it was the Spice, Spice Factory, Factory yeah. in yeah. Hamilton. So we, we kind of treated it like a, almost almost like a day job where for two, uh, two, months, two months in the yeah. summer we went in 
to this rehearsal space every day, Monday to Friday for like five hours and, uh, and just kind of jammed through stuff for a couple of months and then went in October of that year. I think it was 2014 or yeah. no, did we record it in 2013? We recorded in 2013. Right. So yeah. to October, 2013, then we went to <clears throat> LA there and, and, uh, bunkered down another month long right it was like yeah. we we lived there for a month and what was the other big single was it leather jacket yeah leather jacket the come, first come to light come to light was the first single okay. leather jacket was second single 11 11 was the third single but tony you are anthony here i should clarify because there's tony hoffer and there's anthony or anthony is that you're such an eager learner so it's like you you dove right into the synth world because Tony Hoffer's specialty as a producer working with M83 and Beck is like he's a big synth guy he's a big yeah, synth guy and a lot of vintage stuff a lot a of, lot vintage, of vintage, yeah, yeah. I, I ended up buying both of the keyboards that he had in his studio he has a nerdy but uh, GX3P and um, a Roland D50 and we used a lot of that on the record and I just went home and just bought them <laughs> was, um, I feel like he bought the D50 you might have bought the D50 in LA. LA. came with me. We went. Yeah. It was like this, like oh, yeah. remember that? Like it was like some gated apartment complex thing. It was super weird. Um, Good deal though. Great deal. We learned a lot from Tony. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. No, like de- definitely, He's definitely still used a lot of tricks and yeah. yeah. Uh, then we we move on to the study music EP. I missed that one. So it was just a little acoustic thing that we did. That was uh, acoustic songs from High Noon. Why did you do that? Because you could, <laughs> people, people like uh, if we do like an acoustic version that ends up on YouTube, people, go, I love this version. I'd love to, you know, have a a, a recording of it. And um, also, sometimes I get what you say. No, sorry, I was just gonna say too. I mean, it's 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 pretty awesome. We did it because I think a lot of the versions um, ended up being used in uh, like first dances for um, someone's wedding. Yeah. Whereas they can't really do it to the full shebang, right? You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, people. There's something about acoustic music like that that just fits into a different, uh, different kind of atmosphere. And yeah, event. like that eleven eleven acoustic version has been used at like first dances for weddings like countless times. Same thing with our acoustic versions of "My Heart's Always Yours" and and then some. Those three songs, like we get in the summertime, like a couple emails every week with videos from someone's wedding, which is very cool. Like I gotta say, it's it's, it's amazing. Well, it's something. It's it's nice to have. To know that somebody would think as that much of one of your songs to include it on their most precious of days. Right? Yeah. And also, I'll be totally honest, part of the reason for the study EP was me being competitive because I'd hear some singer-songwriter music that people would study to, like, you know, soothing music. And I go, our songs are just as good if we play them on an acoustic guitar. Okay, if that's how you need to listen to them, here it is. And so, and, and we call it study music specifically for like, here it is when you want to study and, re- and relax. There's the, there's the song. So this is the album, which, which has 1111 on it, yeah. which has really always bothered me because I don't understand the 1111 reference. <laughs> yeah. That's cause you're, uh, Old. you're not a youth. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, um, I mean, a lot, I mean, a lot of the lyrics are me just sort of observing what's happening around me at a bar. And a lot of times I would just see like groups of girls or just very stable. Oh, it's 1111. Make a wish. Like that's a thing that I would just hear all the time. And so I was like, Oh, you made a wish at 1111. I held your hips at 1234 and 1234 is one, two, three, four. So I was like, Oh, there's something kind of nice about that. And uh, yeah, that's where it comes from. Okay. Yeah. See, I'm glad I've had this explained because otherwise listen, ask it. Yeah. Scarlett literally every day at 1111 is like, it's 1111. Make a wish. And like, in the apartment. Scarlett, yeah. and I'm like, I know it's a song. <laughs> you made a wish at 11. There was a kiss just waiting to 
more from Arkells in their own words on the way with stories behind songs like Private School and Drake's Dad. This is part two of a conversation with all the guys in Arkells. They are documenting their story in their own words. Next album is, is Morning Report, and uh, you have three big songs in there. My Heart's Always Yours, which has to be another wedding song for a bunch of people. Yeah, it is. Is it about anybody in particular? Or? Yeah, it's about my, my special lady. Okay. Yeah. Uh, private School, mm-hmm. which uh, captures the vibe of a certain type of student. Sure. Person. Is there a story behind that? Yeah, I mean... Okay, do you remember what I was talking about? Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I think... I remember when you were, were kind of talking about this song... It was just kind of like sort of this feeling of like kids who are affluent and cool and kind of like smart in all the ways that are impressive and how that's just like, it's just like a funny thing to behold. And like, because the interesting thing about the song is it's not like a takedown. It's sort of like, uh, I want, like, I want to like you and you're so there's there's just attractive qualities about you but you're just there's something kind of insufferable about that kind of person and there's like a certain <laughs> there's a certain comedy to like the well, the lack of self-awareness about that kind of person despite the being born into such privilege and good fortune and having all these impressive qualities but them not even totally recognizing how lucky they are uh, and this is coming from five white dudes who who have a certain amount of privilege for sure but there's that sort of that that top echelon where it's like I, I want to like you, but like you don't quite get it, do you? Uh, and that's what that's all about. Which is a interesting segue, perhaps, to Drake's dad. Are we talking about Drake? Yeah, yeah. I was on a, a road trip uh, in, in America, and we ran into Drake's dad in, in uh, a bar in Memphis. And so th- that song is really, truly about just going out and like experiencing a new city and, and being with friends. Uh, it could have been called something much different. We thought Drake's dad was just like a funny name for a title. And, and he does make a brief appearance in the first verse. And he, and he stars in the music video, too. We took the 40 down and Start getting beat rational. The place was asking hard questions for a bunch of bachelors. So we stumbled down broad. Drake's Dad, one of the singles from Arkell's Morning Report album. We're almost done with our story time with Arkell's, but there are a few more things we need to cover. Like, for example, all the stuff that resulted from the release of Knocking at the Door. So you're, you're on the road, you're touring, touring, touring uh, behind these first couple of records. And then out of nowhere, you show up with a, the single called Knocking at Your Door. Yeah, Knocking at the Door, yeah. And so where did that was a bit of a surprise. I remember you coming into the radio station saying, hey, we've got this new single. Where's it from? I don't know. We just did it. So let's get to the story behind the creation of that and release of that song. Yeah. So, um, we had been on tour with Frank Turner, uh, in America, the night Trump was inaugurated. And, uh, I remember oh, elected elect. No, no, inaugurated. Sorry. 
Yeah, inaugurated. So it was January. January, okay. Yeah. And we were in D.C. the night before he was inaugurated. So we were kind of taking in the vibes of America. And then the next day was the Women's March. And I was like, oh, you know what? Like, this is a depressing time for a lot of people. But I am inspired by seeing these people take the streets and sort of take back the narrative of, like, you know, who we are as people. And that is something that I think was really important. And so the lyrically, the song kind of begins with thinking about those themes. Um, when we got off the road, Tim had sent me, um, again, one of these things, like you're home for a day or two and then you get bored. And Tim had sent me a batch of beats. Um, describe how you record them. Oh, I, I've collected them for a while there. So it would just, when any time I'm sitting down just practicing, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll record with whatever means, whether that's, I have a bunch of mics or it's just on a phone or it's a little zoom recorder or whatever. Um, and then I'll just throw them into pro tools. So basically I'll play for, let's say an hour. I'll take that and I'll just cut up like you know make loops out of these beats and then and then I'll just dump them all in a folder and send them to these guys so they can you know if they're ever sitting around holding a guitar or whatever whatever they're doing they can pull them up and just start going through them and then if anything strikes creativity then great uh anyway max like one in particular yeah there's one sort of like military marching thing that was like yeah i mean there's some complicated rhythms on that song yeah yeah in yeah, the, the course like oh that's really interesting and that my my brain kind of went to went, that beat with the themes i had about marching in the streets and knocking at the door and demanding change kind of came together in in a way that you you can't predict um and we, Mike, Nick, and I got together at our friend's space in Hamilton and just kind of knocked out a little demo of it, just mostly because we had the time and we were excited to. And uh, we were really excited just to go in and record it. Um, yeah, and, and, and then by the time we got to the studio, I remember within about an hour of being there, the song changed a lot because we sped it up like a huge amount. I'm not sure if like, the, the demo was sort of like a kind of like a uh uh more of a standard sort of marching tempo and then we sped it up poor tim now is having a play <laughs> like, like, play like crazy I remember, I, I remember thinking it was fat like the demo was fast and then and then uh yeah so then it got sped up and uh and that was the great thing about that song and and i think it kind of ended up inspiring us for our next set of recording just the way we kind of like took this sort of kernel of an idea and then when we got in the studio we just really like we're really open to the possibilities but also kind of diving in at the same time and uh eric ratz produced that one and he's really good at sort of keeping that sort of process that sort of really uh spontaneous kind of process on the rails and still moving towards progress but, but open you know and the other thing about the making of that song which was sort of serendipitous was that <clears throat> on Morning Report, we started doing some of our bigger shows with a horn section and backup singers. So we had uh, sort of those tools ready to go. And Tony fashioned the horns. We're like, what are, like kind of like Jesus Walks by Kanye West? Yeah, I mean, like, again, going back to all this, like, you know, marching stuff. There's a um, block party, Dave Chappelle's block party. Mm -hmm. Kanye West does Jesus Walk. On the recording, Jesus Walks, there's actually no horn section, but he does on, on the live oh. version of this. He walks down with like a one of those school marching bands and they're playing that boom boom da, dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. and then 
I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then interject that. And then also like in the pre-chorus there, um, you know, just the solo trumpet is kind of reminiscent of like someone going to, to battle or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. You know? So it's all very thematic. So those are horns. Or actual oh, yeah, yeah, horns. yeah, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's because like yeah. we had been using the horns on like a song like Drake's Dad and other songs from Morning Report. We kind of had that in our brain, and I, I, I feel like with the horns, one one fun detail is Tom. Oh my god, who's our, who plays trumpet yeah. with us and is an amazing trumpet player. We're like, do you play the tuba? And he's like, I don't know how many notes you need me to play. <laughs> like four, four notes. So then, so yeah. then he achieved the uh, the 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 children's horn section. I think with I did like the tuba, him just trying to figure it out. It sounds cool though. And we have we have the Arquettes doing the uh, call and response. Yeah, and that was fun too. And it was kind of one of those things. Is like, I've always been interested in, in what's happening outside of rock and roll as a genre. And I think sometimes I, f I personally feel like a little confined when it's like, is this all we're allowed to do? Like two guitars, bass, piano, drums. And so it's like, oh, can we get a girl's voice in there? Sure. Like, who's telling us we can't? Can we have horns on it? Yeah, let's do it. Like, sort of widening the scope. And also, even the nature of putting out the song as a single, that was a very sort of, like, hip-hop move, right? Like, just to go, no, I don't care about any sort of traditional convention. If I like the song, we're going to put it out. And and we we're really happy that the, the label was on board for it. Now let's talk about Korea. So this is the uh, the 2018 Winter Olympics, mm -hmm. and you guys somehow managed to scam a trip to Pyong uh, to scam. Um, <laughs> that's well, of a scam. Yeah, you kind of did. <laughs> so so explain. We grifted. We're you grifters. Grifted. <laughs> you shamed a national airline. Yeah, <laughs> they're willing participants. So yeah. how does this work? Uh, a few steps. Um, I'll go right back to the beginning. So when we announced our 2016, home, 17 show, was it with the July talk show at the AMP? Was that 17? Yeah, that was in, yeah. Yeah. So when we announced our 2017 show with July talk, our big Toronto show, we got Ron and Don to announce the show. Like, uh, and we filmed them as if they were breaking like, a hockey trade. So we're thinking, okay, Wait, Ron McLean and Don yeah, Cherry? Yeah, Don Cherry and Ron McLean. And we thought that was a fun way to announce our big like hometown summer show. And so we'd been planning the rally, our big Hamilton show. Um, and we're like, what could we, who could announce this one? And then we kind of looked at the calendar and we said, oh, we're announcing it the day the Olympics are kicking off. And so Tessa and Scott, they are, uh, you know, our flag bearers. Maybe they would do it. And I know Tessa had seen us at Oceaga the previous summer. So I was like, oh, she, she's at least familiar with the band. So we slid into her DMs. And we said, would you announce our show? And they we got back within like a day and said, yeah, sure, no problem. So they filmed this show announcement. And so there was already this sort of connection made between Tessa and Scott and the Arkells and the Olympics had just kicked off that day. And then the next day, someone from Korea at the Canada House said, we're listening to the Arkells knocking at the door. It's, it's our theme. Every, every time we honor the athletes of that day, we play that song. We're like, oh, that's really cool. So we tweeted back. Actually, our, our manager, Ashley, she said, just tweet back at them and copy Air Canada. Air Canada will probably pick up the bill and send you guys over there, just sort of jokingly. And then sure enough, within three days, that's exactly what happened. And uh, we were on a plane like in less than a week. It was yeah, that's, crazy. that's a 14 and a half hour flight. Yeah. Did they at least spring for premium economy? Uh, no, we, we absolutely we, not. <laughs> <laughs> we were in coach. Although I did. I, I, 
They had. Oh. They just kept people. No, they just had no one beside us. They made sure no one was sitting beside us. No, that was. That was no, because no. I, I, I just, I just walked in there yeah. at one point, and then they kicked me out. I thought it was my rock and roll move of the trip. <laughs> but it's funny we didn't have, um, you know, because it was all very last minute, and we were trying to do it as official as we could, but we didn't have exactly the right paperwork and we weren't so we didn't bring any instruments with us we just we were said we were on the bobsled team yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah we got there and we did like three shows at the canada house like every night and it was a party but like they really weren't equipped for us they didn't have they had a stage that was big enough just to have the drums on it and so the rest of us played on the ground like a proper house party and um the best part is that we showed up the last five days of the olympics so a lot of the Olympians were ready to party because they had finished their events. Uh, if we had shown up in the first five days, it would have been a much more somber affair because everyone would have had their game faces on. I, I would say if you're going to Korea, you should go long, for longer than a weekend. <laughs> that, that <laughs> that's that's true. The time zones are bad. And uh, if you have kimchi on that first day, <laughs> you need a couple of days to recover oh, from man. or at least get used to it. I remember walking around at like 4 a.m. just because I can't sleep, you're all mixed up, and it's 4 a.m. and I'm walking around, and then Corey Shaver, I see, I see him walking the streets. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I couldn't sleep. I'm like, this is messed up. Yeah. <laughs> it's too far to go for two days or whatever it was. And let's wrap up with a with a description of Rally Cry and, and where you guys see yourself going going with this, uh, with this album cycle. How do you describe it? Yeah, I think being so close to it, it's hard to to totally describe it, but I can tell you the feeling of it, because we were playing a lot live, I think that it has uh, a lot of energy, and I think there's a certain kind of like communal energy to the record, and I think it brings together a lot of the elements from all the records we've discussed in a really great way, and uh, it takes a lot of the lessons we've learned about how we work best as a band, and, and... that's that's what I remember most about the sessions. I have to ask about the Tim Hortons Field show. Tell that story because that's that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we're always trying to beat the last thing that we did, whether that's a record or a show. And we, we had that great night at the amphitheater at Budweiser Stage, and um, we were thinking, okay, what what could we do that's maybe even grander? We hadn't played Hamilton in a while, um, and so. You know, we had a few ins, you know, with the with the Tiger Cats. We know those people well, and they were keen to have us uh, play their facility. Uh, so we just got planning. And then the coolest part about it was that we, because they don't really sh- have a lot of concerts there, and there's not a formula for putting on an event there, we kind of got to make it up. So basically all the things that we would want as music fans, we got to design. So, you know. Well, when it was Ivor Wynn, yeah. there were no shows there for decades. Yeah, Pink Floyd. Because <laughs> of the Pink Floyd issue that yeah. happened back in the 70s. Yeah, I think there's a more of a mandate to have more like public events uh, there at the facility now. So yeah, we got to, you know, curate the bill. We got to design the poster. We got to, we, we organized a bike ride along the Cannon Street bike lanes from downtown uh, to, to the stadium. We had an artist flea market beforehand. Uh, there was a lot of sort of like programming within the city where people like made custom Arkell's beer and sausages or cupcakes. And um, I don't know, it, was, it felt like a real communal event. And the, there was a charity angle to it as well, where some, some money went to a Refuge, which is a healthcare organization for new Canadians. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was definitely a very stunning day. How many people were there? Uh, 24,000, just about. Yeah. It's pretty good. It's 
pretty good. So you're you're officially a stadium act. Well, in Hamilton, yeah, for one night. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tony also had a a baby uh, about like 48 hours before. Yeah. Was it how Tell close? Story, was it? Not even. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty. Pretty. pretty close, close to yeah. 30, 30 36 hours before. Or so, um, my wife was due June 10th. And uh, this was like the one show that was slotted in kind of like a two week before, two week after period. And, you know, every day that went by, you know, I was hair was going a little whiter and uh, just he literally came uh, the day, the morning of the sound check the day before. So um, he was born at 8 a.m. I drove to Hamilton, did sound check. 6 p.m. to 10, went back to the hospital, slept upright in a chair. Next day, dropped my wife and n- newborn at home, and uh, went went to do the show. And I was running on fumes, like literal. I'm fumes. sure she was really pleased. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, she. I mean, you know, we, she she gets it. You know, we all know the name of the game by this point. You know, so. You got no vision for the long run. You got no sense of history. You got. And we are up to date with our Kells as of early 2019. Next up, the Rally Cry Tour. Do you have any ideas for the next big thing you want to do? Well, I mean, you've got a, a, an arena tour coming out. Yeah, that's sort of the next thing in front of us is uh, these Canadian dates. And, you know, we're playing with Lord Huron. And we're really excited to see them play every night. And I feel like... Um, yeah, it's a new adventure for us being able to play these big rooms uh, across the across the country, and um, I don't know that that's the one thing about the job that I really like is that you get to experience new things all the time. It's not the same the same thing every time we go out, and um, yeah, so making making these shows feel as special as, as possible. And the other thing is that this record, you know, came out whatever two months ago it's still very new you know like we know that from past experience like the record sort of is peaking usually you know 14 months into it like that many more people know the songs then than they do when it's only been out for a couple months so i'm excited to see where these songs like end up in people's lives that, that's the thing you put someone in the world and you go oh like knocking the door ended up being played at the olympics and like 11 11 was played at people's weddings you know it's, it's funny how you know you have no control over that, but they can land in interesting places. Thanks to all the guys, the band, and everybody at Dynalone and Universal for herding all the cats into the studio for this conversation. Don't forget that we convert all these radio shows into podcasts. Subscribe at Apple iTunes or wherever you get your on-demand audio. And all the podcasts are always free. And if you can write a review and rate them, that would be fantastic because that really helps us. And if you find something that should be shared with a friend, please do it. Other places you can find me, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. There's my website, which is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day, and it comes with a free newsletter, too. No spam. As for email, send it all to alan at alancross.ca. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.